0: What up Wizards fans, a way to help support this podcast is to go to Sneakers, S-N-E-K-I-S dot com. Sneakers, a DMV DC sports apparel company. They have a lot of new t-shirt designs up and a nice clearance sale going on right now as well. And at checkout, in our playoffs, part of your order will continually help support me in this endeavor. Now, let's get this show started. Sneakers playoffs, do it. And now, it's the Pixel and Roll Show with Adam Mogadis! So, welcome to another edition of the Pixel Roll Show, where we discuss your Washington Wizards! Hello everyone, this is Adam McGinnis, it is Tuesday, June 27th, 2017, hello everyone! How has your post-Wizard season hiatus been going? Good summer so far? Just got back kicking with the fam in Orlando, nice and tan and rested, and real life work is not as fun as laying by the pool. But enough of my personal life, let's get into this team. With me today, a prominent guest, he's been on the pod a few times, so he is a friend of the pod, a man that loves his internet jokes, very snarky on the Twitter machine, and a great dad, supposedly, that's the rumor out there, Mr. Jake Whitaker of Bullets Forever. Jake, what is up, bro? How are you?
1: Yeah, I I am good. Uh, Bree actually um, alleged that um, I don't love her tonight. Mm. So that uh, yeah, a little, little little drama at the house uh, this <laughs> evening over bedtimes. But
0: uh, you know, listen, I've you wiped, wiped your ass. Let's not talk about love.
1: <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly.
0: How, how old is Bree?
1: Uh, she is five
0: now. She's five, so. going on twenty. yeah exactly pretty much how's your summer been man how's it going so far
1: it is going well um you know just uh you know prepping for this off season a, a little bit different than it was last season um you know just trying to like get stuff ready for uh what should be a wild free agency but you know the rest of life's going well weather's nice uh you know everything else is good what about you my man
0: yeah do, doing good man I've had uh, some vacations, family stuff I got a good July coming up so I'm pretty stoked you know the weather is we got a little nice break here in the nation's capital like 70s, 80s before the heat dome I'm assuming is headed here for the 4th of July weekend <laughs> but yeah yeah you know barbecues coming up uh, you know just trying to stay in shape somewhat uh, you know I was at an older age got a big birthday coming up later on in August. But Jake, you know, the question I always have with people, I can't remember the last time I've had you on, maybe in the middle of the season, but I always ask, hey, what are your thoughts on the season? Well, here we are. The season's over. We're getting geared up for this offseason, which ends up being just as crazy here in the NBA season these days than the regular season, which is weird. that there seems to be more interest sometimes in what happens in July. A uh, June or July than there is, you know, say, even the playoffs to a certain extent. But, Jake, what is your thoughts on the 2015 – I'm sorry, 2016-17 season of the Washington Wizards? What kind of takeaways do you have when you reflect on the season that just transpired?
1: Well, I, I think the biggest thing is just that it was really great to see um, the Wizards' star talent finally be maximized and uh, used the way that um, we wanted to see them used for so long. Um You know, Wall finally, you know, got a chance to really just be that monster in transition and in the half court that he can be. He took his offensive game to another level. Beal finally kind of found the right balance between attacking and shooting. Porter took another step forward. Gortat continued to do his thing. And, you know, for at least a month there, Mark Keith Morris looked like, you know, a a fully competent stretch four. So, you know, that was really great to see. But at the same time, that's the issue. It's, you know, you got pretty much best case scenario out of your top five players. Um, you know, of course, Mahimi was hurt. And so, you know, there is some room for improvement there. But, I mean, otherwise, um, I mean, it's hard to ask for much more than what you've got. And so that's all that's kind of a concern in a way too that you know i think a lot of other teams in the east like cleveland and boston um you know they they can still improve if you know they get healthier and add more pieces but you know washington's i, I don't i don't know how much further they can go with where they are
0: yeah it was a fun season scott brooks uh, comes to mind when i reflect on how things went down I was very surprised I guess I wasn't surprised but my perception of what kind of coach he was at Oklahoma City and then what I witnessed uphand you know just how and not just how he dealt with the media which he was very approachable and very uh, just Night and day from Randy Whitman, and you could get answers out of him or somewhat thoughtful. He would think about your questions, whereas Whitman was trying to get out of your questions, and I just stopped asking Randy questions at the end of his tenure. But I was really surprised with how they started so slowly, and they bounced back. And there was a stretch there, January, February, before the All-Star break, that they were arguably one of the best teams in the East, if not the NBA, playing at such a high level. And I always remember uh, that Point of how this team did face some adversity, trying to figure some things out, and you touched on Beal and Wall stepping up, you know, especially with the injury bug that had always plagued Beal, and we didn't see that happen. He played a career-high of games, and Wall taking his game to another level uh, when he was coming off of you know knee surgery in the off-season. I did not see those two things transpiring, and then just Otto's development of becoming one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Those things really stand out to me. What were your thoughts on Scott Brooks as a coach and just how he changed uh, the environment and the atmosphere and just how this team played?
1: Yeah, I I mean, you know, the thing with Scott Brooks is he's always kind of been criticized as, you know, maybe not the best tactical coach. And, you know, I I think it's really hard to have much of an opinion on that uh, after this first season, just because he really didn't have many options. Uh, you know they're just the bench was limited as we all know and uh, you know so it was really hard to make any configuration work for any amount of time but um, you know I, I think the the biggest thing was he changed the culture he um, got the, the best players to play at their best and um, you know got you know the players that needed to be the core of this team to be the core of this team so um you know, I think things are heading in the right direction. Uh, you know, they You know, I, I think if the Wizards do take that next step and they're really, you know, on the precipice of, you know, being a finals contender, then maybe some of those tactical um, issues might become more um, called out. Like, you know, there was some question about some of what he did in Game Seven. Uh, personally, I thought it was kind of overblown just given his options. But, you know, we'll we'll see how that tracks. But, you know, the Wizards are in a much better spot than they've been in quite some time with uh, the coaching situation.
0: Yeah, it's hard to really quibble with Scott Brooks' rotations with the bench and different mixes when his options were just so limited. And so there is mm-hmm. some things that come to mind, and we're going to get into a little bit of that. But I, speaking of Scott Brooks, Jake, I will give you what I'm going to ask him. Maybe next week, I don't know, if they'll probably have some media availability before they head off to Summer League. I know they usually do. Or what I'm going to ask him again in Media Day in September is, how much have you thought of Kelly Olenek this summer? Because <laughs> I try to stop thinking about Kelly Olenek, that, that the season comes down to Kelly Olympic Game 7, and I know it's unfair to a certain extent, but holy shit, Jake. So I just want to ask you, before I ask Scott Brooks, and maybe some players, how much have you thought about Kelly Olynyk and what the hell happened uh, with him in that Game Seven? Because, you know, I, I listen to Bill Simmons' podcast here and there. And, you know, of course, he's gloating and he keeps mentioning Kelly Olynyk like offhand. Every time he mentions his name, I get this little piercing uh, jab in my in my gut. No matter where I'm at, listening to that, uh, and it refreshes. So maybe I'm just not over Kelly Olynyk yet, and maybe I'll never be over Kelly Olynyk. And so your thoughts of just how that all transpired and did, holy shit. I mean, do we lose a game seven in Boston because Kelly Olynyk mm-hmm. did not miss a shot in the fourth quarter?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that was, you know, you know, people say, you know, you get the ball out of the, the best player's hands and you know get it to a role player. And if they beat you, they beat you. And I think that's ultimately what happened. This was, you know, a lot like Game 2, where Isaiah Thomas took over late, but whereas the Wizards just let Thomas score at the end of Game 2 and kind of take that over, they were able to get the ball out of his hands, but when they did that, they just left the clinic wide open. And so, you know, if, if, if the choice is, you know, get beaten by um, the star player that you know you have to stop and just not stopping him or letting the role player who you know, in theory should give you an easier time of getting by. If, if he just makes all the shots, uh, you got to live with it. And so I, I I think if if you give me those two options, while, you know, the Olynyk thing seems more embarrassing on its face, it's, you know, it's, it's not like Olynyk was creating his own shots. He was just benefiting off the open looks of the Wizards collapsing on Thomas. So,
0: you know, it is what it is. So you gotta live or die by Kelly Olenek, and we died. <laughs> and all players, him too, right? The cheap shot at John Wall, right? Gotten the thing with Ubre, you know. His hair drives me up a wall. It, you know, pun intended. And just to go down with him is left a bitter taste in my mouth. But let's go back here, Jake, because I want your take here on the playoffs. And it reminded me of, from Game 6, the high of Game 6 to the low of losing Game 7, it in a weird way, reminded me of, gosh, one of the most memorable moments in Wizards uh, lore. In 2006, Game 6, at home, Gilbert Arenas is a 35-footer against LeBron James and the Cavs to tie the game up, similar to where John Wall hit his shot in Game 6, to tie the game, they go to overtime, they up to, they have a chance to put it away. Gilbert misses both free throws, the LeBron thing. I know everyone listening here is like, oh, Adam, don't remind me of this. I was at the game, sequel to Mayo, 2006. I never heard an arena louder, still this day, than when Gilbert hit that shot. And when Damon Effin Jones hits that three to beat the Wizards, I had never felt so low after a sporting event. I've been in a lot of terrible sporting events in my life. Thank you, Nebraska Huskers and Iowa Hawkeyes. And, and thank you, Michael Ruffin, too, by the way. I was at that game for, for yeah. all those. And we've talked about it before. But it was weird because I'm talking about one game, per se, You know, back in the Big 3 where I thought the, the Wizards had a chance to win that game, to go from John Wall on the scores table, telling it's my city, hitting that crazy shot in the arena, to then now how I felt two days later, uh, actually three days later, after they lost in Game 7, which I thought was potentially winnable, with how they hung in there and just kind of collapsed there late in the third and the fourth. So let's go back. Jake, what I'm asking is that your emotions of the wall game winner and then how you felt at the end of game seven when they lost. A winnable series, I believe, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think for me the thing was um, wall hitting that shot in game six, um, you know, was preferable. um, You know, because... If if you recall, if Wall hadn't hit that shot, the the series clinching shot would have been Al Horford oh, hitting the bank shot. Oh, I know.
0: already already was ready to write that. Um, I did right because from two years right. prior when he hits the tip, and that would have right? been
1: <laughs> right, and that would have been the ultimate wild finish after you and, know everything and, last and it, summer.
0: Yeah, no, of course, right? It was two two fold. Jake I already saw that narrative. It was it was him picking. Celtics over the Wizards and then him also hitting the game tip in over A on that rebound two years prior in game five and I was like oh my god it's going to be Al Horford so I guess you're right in that sense that god that would have been we. I would be have started this podcast with a 20 minute rant against Al Horford right <laughs> right yeah so it's like you know
1: c- compared to you know having Ke- Kelly Olenek you know take you out that's you know significantly better um but then as far as, um, you know, the rest of it, um, I, I kind of felt like the Wizards were playing with house money in game seven. You know, as great as Wall's shot was, you know, that's, you know, a very low percentage shot. And, uh, you know, if if you need that much to get by at home, um, you know, in a game that's, you know, potentially the end of your season, I, I feel like that, you know, it kind of sets you up to be, you know, behind the eight ball, going back to the other team's arena. Um, they also said, Jake, that was out. the
0: first true game winner of his career, which I don't really remember that. Right. And then also the first three game winner in the playoffs at that point since Ray Allen. And yeah. it gets the heat. So, I mean, we got a lot of low probability things happening
1: here. For sure. So, I, I mean, it just kind of felt like in, you know, the way the Wizards had used their rotations in that game, um, you know, you, you just knew that the Celtics probably had a little bit more in the tank going back home. And so, you know, you would have really needed um, someone to get hot um, other than Beal, you know, because, you know, as great as Beal was in game seven, you have to remember it was in part because he had Isaiah Thomas on him. So he was getting a lot of quality looks and you know taking advantage of them to his credit, but um, yeah, it, it just kind of felt like the Wizards were going to need something unusual to go their way, and it you know it just didn't.
0: So and then played. You know, going back to Brook the Brooks rotations, I guess I have to make the point. And you said it was overblown, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And. You know, Wall obviously was gassed, and there was criticism about him afterwards, which I thought was unfair. And I thought that there was a chance for him to, because I think Wall made only made what one shot in his last I don't know ten, or he made a shot, and yeah, I thought something he got, like that. I thought, yeah, I thought he got fouled a bunch of times. Actually, didn't get called, but the he was obviously gassed. Uh, they didn't play Ubre. They didn't go with the young legs. I don't know if that would have made a difference at all, honestly, if you want to be fair. But that was something that now stands out because that was a clinching game. In reality, I thought that this series was lost in game one and two with them not winning one of those games. Because if you look at it, to win four out of five where two are on the road against uh, the team that has the best record in the East, I mean, that is a tall order. Yeah.
1: Right? yeah and that was kind of my... Yeah, when, when they blew the big lead in Game 1, granted, part of that was the Morris injury and how they kind of messed up their Al, Al Horford then, again!
0: Al Horford again!
1: Exactly. <laughs> right. So, you never get away from Horford, unfortunately. Yes. But yeah, between that and then, you know, they had Game 2 in a good spot, but then they just couldn't uh, slow down Thomas there in the last few minutes because... Shocker! Thomas was fresher than Wall and the rest of the starters who had been playing, you know, close to 40 minutes going down the stretch. Um, yeah, it just the Celtics' depth saved them in in you know Game Two and Game Seven, and and that's what I, it just goes back to when the Wizards' starters were healthy and playing together, they were winning the series, and you know between the bench just not performing well outside of the home games and um, just not being um, able to play more minutes um, that just put the starters in a position where they couldn't win.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look back, too, we, I mean, I'm bitching about Kelly Linnick, but what Wizards random player stepped up in this series, that series at all? Nobody. Yeah, right? right? I mean, they were negative. I mean, there wasn't even a Brandon Jennings showing out against Atlanta in, in Game Five in the first in the first round of the playoffs, or you know Bogdanovich getting hot. I mean, I guess he did get a little hot a couple of times in uh, some of the games against Boston, but there wasn't. They were just negative, and the whole and so Brooks just had confidence in them, and I I think that some of the criticism towards the Ubre stuff is a little bit overblown, like you were saying. But then I also think that if you would ask me should Ubre played more, I'd say yes. Right.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I I'd agree with that. I mean I think he he gives you that um volatile uh component you need. Um you know, I think more times than not, especially through the playoffs and with that uh knee thing he had going on, he was more of a a liability than an asset. But you know, if he gives you you know, a good six minute stretch there, then that gives you a chance to You know, either Restado or Markeef or Gortat, and you know, and and that was, I think, an issue, especially with Morris, that they didn't really have a good option behind him against the Celtics. Jason Smith just wasn't a good matchup um, against Boston. So, and I thought, I
0: thought was was really bad too. I feel like his injury really came. He looked so out of place, and even his defense was really poor. Against the Celtics there I was really disappointed in his play right so Jake I, I, what I would ask do you feel because the criticism I remember of the season and we were talk about it you know in December in January when you know especially when things were humming you know there you know I know Adam Rubin wrote some stuff on our site and I think there were some some things going on you know in wizard Twitter land or you know wizards you know writers on your side or maybe hoop district where There was like, yo, hey, like this starting five is arguably, you know, plus minus one of the best in the league. And it was, according to the stats. But they were logging the heaviest minutes. And there was always this worry. And we saw a little dip after the All-Star break where the bench actually played a lot better uh, to help the starters. And when the Wizards were kind of struggling here and there on some games, especially on the road, and they would come back and the starters would come back and they, you know, they'd be trailing big time in Sacramento or that crazy game in Phoenix. Or, you know, there was examples where they would finally turn it on here and there, or just how they almost collapse against the Lakers, but then end up winning. Do you feel like there was a cumulative effect that came out in game seven? Because in a way, I don't know if it's hard to say like, oh, John Wall had three, two to, you know, Sunday, and month, or, hits a game shot Friday night. Saturday, Sunday off, travel, so now he's got almost three days of rest, per se, and does that mean that he logged so many minutes early in the year? It's hard to really quantify that, but it also is the fact that John Wall, I don't remember him actually even, when they were logging heavy minutes, playing the entire second half the way he did in that Game 7. So how much do you think that uh, that factored into just them, the lack of depth, and the log and the minutes, you know, Gortat I feel like had a bad game, uh, but then Beal had a really good game, so so I don't know. It's hard to tell. Do you think that that had any effect at all about how this series played out? Because for me personally, John Wall and Bradley Beal had game winners in Game Two, and they missed them. And if they win those, win one of those games, especially Game Two, the series is probably different. I think the Wizards win in six. So it's also really hard for me to look at different ways. But this is how it played out. John Wall played the entire second half in Game Seven, didn't hit a shot, went extremely cold. The offense bogged down. They blew the. They were not in it, and then they fell apart. And then Kelly Olynyk went nuts and made like six shots in a row. And they're chanting Kelly in the Boston Garden, and I wanted to kill myself at a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: right. It, it's it's yeah. I, I do think it it was ultimately a cumulative thing. It's it's something, you know. It's not so much that Wall and Beal were tired, but they were slightly more fatigued than Boston. And while that might not seem like a lot in a seven-game series against two otherwise pretty even teams, it's better to be more, um, to be fresher than than the other team, and you know every little advantage counts. So yeah, I, I do think that mattered, and I and I think it bared itself out. And you know a big issue with why the. Wizard's offense did bog down a bit in the second half. Was just, you know, man, the same way he does, and I think that's a byproduct of fatigue. And whereas you know, Beal was still able to kind of do his thing because you know he could just run off screens, and you know whether you're tired or not, Isaiah Thomas running into and Wortel still an effective play.
2: Yeah, so they, I, and, I they got, and they got a
0: lot of like Marcus Smart hitting threes and Jake Crowder, who who had been up and down in the series. So that really manifested. They got other contributions that we didn't really see from the Wizards. But, Jake, enough about the season, about Game 7. It is what it is. What it is. The favorite quote uh, of Mike Miller back in the day and still of most NBA players, especially Otto Porter and Bradley Beal, but the, in, we had a draft. Didn't it be a draft, Jake? How was it? I, I Did not did we? Go, Oh, yes. There, yes. Uh, there's a thing at the end of the season, Jake, where the top college players uh, are available, and they, they go by the basis in the NBA. There's two rounds, and you get to select them. Uh, the, the Wizards, uh, did they participate? No, they did not. For uh, the second year in a row, you're watching the Wizards did not take a player in the draft. And, Jake, here's the deal. I think I just had you on because I was going to do a special podcast where I just vented about this by myself, right. uh, which is not very fun. Even even people that listen to this podcast or listen to me over the years would think I'm very negative and cynical and, you know, hey, bitter. I just am passionate about this team. But I am actually a pretty positive guy <laughs> and happy. But, Jake, I'm just this, – this whole – Thing about not drafting players just drives me up an effing wall. So I spent the draft just angry tweeting. And here's the thing, Jake: the draft is supposed to be fun. I mean, it is like the Super Bowl for the Sixers fans. For God's sakes, I, I, we Money. don't we don't want it to be like that. And yeah, it was more fun when we had more first round picks and earlier in the John Wall era. And I wrote more. But this, this year, Jake, I did no podcast leading up to the draft. I did not attend one workout, which I've always attended a workout. I did not write one thing because, Jake, I knew that the 52nd pick would either not matter, they would sell it or trade it. And our friend, Mr. Ernest Grunfeld, uh, team president for life, gave a impromptu press conference, media availability, which for those following this team... That don't know a little behind the scenes. That does not happen. There was no, there was no media presser at all. There, all. of a sudden, I found out on Twitter that Ernie Grunfeld was answering questions after the last summer workout. So he answers questions. He says, you know, hey, we're looking at these players. You know, typical Ernie speak uh, on the record. Off the record, Ernie is actually pretty insightful when it comes to basketball. On the record, I it's just it, it's just. Uh, you don't, I, I don't play anything that Ernie says because, first of all, I know the people do not want to hear anything Grunfeld says. I'm very cognizant of that. But also, his monotone voice. He's very good at saying a lot of things without saying anything. He's perfected that. But he says in the thing that I, I felt this is so typical Wizards. They have this impromptu media availability. They have all these people talk about it. Grunfeld gives these questions. I see the headlines and see the headlines and I'm sure maybe you guys wrote some stuff on Bulls Forever. And then the next day, they trade their pick. Literally, the next night, yeah. before the draft. That, that, that night, I believe, before the draft. And I just said some snark. I was like, in true, is really neat of the Wizards to pretend that they're going to do a bunch of stuff. And then all of a sudden, hours later, trade the pick, which they probably already knew when he was actually talking to everyone. And in my cynical, snarky way, which I've been rambling on here, Jake, but I have a point, is that... At least they got out of the way. Because in 2014, I sat in a hotel with my family and made them watch the draft in the hotel room because I was waiting for the Wizards' second-round pick. And then it came. My mom's like, "Who they pick? What happened, Adam? You've been obsessed with us for hours." I'm like, "They sold it, mom." <laughs> my mom has no idea what that means, and she's like, "Wow, you waited this forever." And I and I still remember where I was, uh, you know, in the with a laptop cussing in the thing. My mom's like. Does it really matter? And I'm like, not really, mom. But I mean, how anticlimactic it was. So props to the Wizards organization for getting this trade out of the way. But your thoughts leading up, uh, Jake. So I did see that you guys did do a lot of uh, pieces on who they would draft at 52nd. I found it a very futile exercise because this is this is not my first rodeo when it comes to Ernest Grumfeld. I, I, I did not think that they would actually sell it or trade it or whatever. I just thought that that was maybe a possibility. And I, in, in the past, I would do all these... I'd go to these workouts, interview all these players, and they would not draft them, and that didn't really matter. And I just felt like it was a wasted time of my resources. But Jake, you and Bulls Forever, you guys are in the con- feeding the content monster, which I know the game, and God bless that you provide all this material for Wizards fans thirsty because, once again, the draft is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to talk about whether or not... They should draft Monte Morris from Iowa State, right? Should they get a point guard? Should they get all these players? It did not happen. Uh, before we get into what they actually did in that move, just your thoughts on the draft and leading up and the players you thought of 52nd and <laughs> and when you found out that they actually made a trade and for once again for the second straight year, the Washington Wizards... Have not made a selection in a draft because last year I believe was the first year in how many years they didn't have a selection, and they followed up once again with uh, no selections two years in a row. Yeah, well, well, let
1: me tell you where um, I, you know, I mean, it it was pretty clear. I felt like that the Wizards probably weren't going to do anything. First of all, they only had five pre-draft workouts. That's true. They usually
0: have a we, lot more, right?
1: Yeah, and and I mean. To be fair, um, some of the guys that they did bring out from those pre-draft workouts like Chris Jenkins and Marcus Keene, they are now on the summer league team but you know they, they really had an issue getting you know guys that I think you know, would be considered top you know 60 talent that you know draftable in because you know I, I think a lot of guys in that range you don't want to work out for someone that low in the draft order because it you know it makes you look like you're panicking. Whereas guys on the outside looking in are like begging to get a workout with the Wizards to look like their draft material. So I'll acknowledge that that was kind of you know you're kind of in a tricky spot. But at the same time, you know also when you get um, a press release the night before um, announcing that they're um, that uh, media are invited to watch the draft in the press room. Um, there's Did you see? Okay, you know, i remember, you know,
0: can I interrupt real quick. Did you see the setup? Yeah. Did you, someone tweet it? Maybe it was Ben Standing. Uh, tweeted. <laughs> I, they actually no, put him, I, in, I put him it. in the locker room, which is really crazy. And I was like, the, and maybe Kyle made some snark about it on Twitter. I should find it. Maybe I'll link to it yeah. in the show notes. But I was like, wow, they actually set up a media war room in the Wizards locker room for the media. When they had no picks and no chance. Anyway, I thought that was really hilarious. It also made me uh, glad that I was at a family trip in Orlando uh, poolside. So keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like you
1: know, I you know, I'm in Winchester. I knew I wasn't going to be able to make it, but I you know, I sent it to Mike Sykes, who you know can get to some of our stuff sometimes. Did did he go? uh, Did he go? No, he didn't. But but when I forwarded it to him, I just said, LOL. Because we both knew what it meant. I didn't
0: go last year, Jake. I sat on my couch and I was like, dude, I'm so glad I didn't go. You know?
1: Yeah. And, I mean, it's just like even when the David Aldridge uh, tweeted out about oh, the, 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 the Tim Fraser trade, you know, they said the Wizards were looking to, you know, potentially buy back into the second round. And, and you know, maybe that was legitimate. I'm not
2: going to you know, question <laughs> –
0: That was part of of my rant on draft night. I was like, really? Did you have to say that? We know that's not true. And all these Twitter people were like, what do you mean, Adam? And when they didn't do it, they were like, God, you were right. I was like, I don't want to be right. I'm just telling you, like, the probability here, fellas. You know? Anyway, keep going. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like, I'm I'm sure they were telling themselves that there was a chance. It's not like the scouting department does nothing. I'm sure they're doing their due diligence and everything. But we know what the patterns are. And, yes!
0: You Unfortunately, know, for we've whatever seen reason, the show played out millions of times, right, Jake?
1: Yeah, and, and it's just for whatever reason, pretty much after about the 40th pick, um, the Wizards just don't... The risk-reward gamble isn't there for them most of the time, and so if they can get somebody that they think is a competent player rather than you know risk whatever it is for the 52nd pick, they do it. And so that's what we see here with the Tim Frazier trade relative to some of the other draft trades they've made. I looked it up um, in the build-up to the draft, and I, I want to say over the last 17 years that like maybe eight guys had played more than a season in the NBA over the last 17 years with the 52nd pick. So, I mean, if oh, you yeah, I, saw, die... I, saw,
0: I saw you tweet that out about how depressing the actual 52nd pick results have been. <laughs> yeah, it was like so really uber depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's
1: like even if you get like just a year of competent backup point guard production, that's probably more than you get with a pick most of the time. But we always say it's not just about the isolation of just the individual deal; it's that all the you context you throw matters, away, Jake. Right?
0: Context matters yes. in this case.
1: Context matters. So you throw away opportunities to swing for the fences a little more. And going back to your point with the 2014 draft, you know who the Wizards could have taken in 2014?
0: Tim Frazier. Tim Frazier. So, so Jake, before we get to Tim Frazier, who did your readers or your writers or what was the kind of consensus before the trade happened leading up to the draft, the type of players, or the individual players that people kind of advocated for, argued that the Wizards maybe should take. I know this is re- retrospect, but I like to just for the people to listen that you know I didn't really yeah. follow this. I know it doesn't really matter, but I'm just curious. So now you can follow these players and their and how it played out, and follow those players, and then you can get mad like I get mad about you know they selling Jordan Clarkson in 2014. I'm so pissed about or them selling. Jawan Blair in 2009, I'm still pissed about. It. Hell, I'm still pissed about him selling Jermaine Taylor, for God's sakes, and he didn't even beat me. He wasn't even good.
1: <laughs> right. It, it's hard to really have a consensus that late in the draft. I think most people...
0: Which is another reason why it. I didn't really write much or podcast about it, because it's yeah. like, who the hell knows? I mean, you can be five to ten players, right? Right.
1: You know, if it was, like, earlier in the draft, sometimes I'll, like, rewrite some stuff just to have it ready. But it's like... Fifty seconds. We're not even going to bother. We're just going to run with it. Whatever ha- whatever happens. People were thinking it would probably either be like a point guard like Monty Morris or uh, Frank Mason, even though you know he ended up going much sooner than that. Or you know that they would probably try to you know pull another Aaron White, take a developmental big, stash him overseas, and you know hope he's something down the road. And then that way you know it doesn't really hurt your cap sheet. Uh, this summer, so probably they're gonna be one of those two things, or they would more
0: likely trade the pick, and that's what happened. Commercial break time. Yes, my sponsor, Sneakus S N E K I S, sneakus.com, DMV DC sports apparel. I just hooked up a tight district basketball t shirt, the material so so soft, and also got a dope baseball hoodie. And when you go to the website and at checkout for your purchases in our playoffs. Part of your proceeds go to me and help me continually do this show. And it does support Wizards Independent Media, which is not owned by Comcast or the team, and why you continually listen to the real. Now, back to the show. Sneakers, do it for me. Thanks. All right, so they trade for Tim Frazier. I have no idea who this guy is. I don't play fantasy basketball, but supposedly he was really good last year for the New Orleans. Uh, fantasy basketball, even though people talked about New Orleans having no backup point guard. uh, It seems to me that isolationist, $2 million for one year, a decent pickup for the Wizards. He's athletic, uh, has a high assist rate, can't really shoot. Uh, His shooting numbers are poor. He had some injury issues during his career. He was a D-League MVP, worked his way in his into the league, he's 26 or 27. The actual, if you analyze what the Wizards would have got at 52 and what he can contribute, he is better than what the Wizards would have got at 52. So in a vacuum, once again, I think it's an okay move for the Wizards. Uh, You know, there's other reasons I'm about to go on a rant after we're done talking about Tim Frazier, about the whole philosophy about what the Wizards organization is doing with when it comes to acquiring and developing young players, or young assets, to flip them or develop them, which I feel like they are totally uh, blundering this whole process. But this is analyze Tim Frazier. What he brings to the table. What you thought about the move and his whole situation? At $2 million for one year, I, I would say it's an okay move, a decent move. Yeah,
1: I would... Well, I'll say one very positive thing and one very negative thing about the trade. The positive thing is that not only do you get him for just the year, but you do have his bird rights. So next summer, um, you know, if he does pan out and he's good, um, you can, you know, sign him, go over in, you know, even though you're well over the cap and maybe in the tax at that point, you can still keep him and it doesn't really hurt anything. Um, so that's good to have that flexibility, and you know, hopefully you don't have to chase another point guard uh, next summer. But at the same time, um, a lot of what you just described—you um, know, good passer, uh, interesting kind of playmaker, doesn't shoot all that well—kind um, of sounds like the backup point guard that um, was just here, Brandon Jennings. <laughs> and and if you look at. The, you know, the per 36 and the true shooting, uh, Tim's numbers in New Orleans were very comparable to what Brandon did in New York before he was bought out and signed in Washington. And then, of course, when he signed in Washington, uh, his shooting numbers, which were bad, got worse. And, you know, that had, you know, um, ripple effects on him being able to make plays and do other stuff. So um, that's, I think, a big concern. Um, I do think, you know, Frazier's shot is a little more uh, workable. I think there is some more you can do to salvage that. But at the same time, if you don't get another, like, a quality backup guard behind Beal, you're still going to have the same issue of when Beal comes out, who do you put next to Wall? If it's Tim Frazier, you're going to have the same kind of issues you had with Wall and Jennings. If it's satransky that's... Again, the same kind of issues. You know, Sadoransky can defend a little bit, but he's probably even a worse shooter unless he takes a massive step forward this summer.
0: And so, you know, unless So so basically um, going going back to like to play Tomas and, and Fraser together just seems unworkable to have two guys in the back where they can't shoot.
1: Yeah, especially if, if Ubre is your guy at small forward, um, I, I ran the numbers for something I'm working on and you're basically, your three perimeter guys um, on that bench unit combined to shoot about 29% from three and, and in that's today's NBA, work.
0: that's terrible
1: <laughs> that, that wasn't good in yesterday's NBA.
0: Yes, exactly that's How about this too, Jake the, the only negative thing I would see so much about Frazier per se, because I don't know what else they could have got or whatever and they obviously do not want to commit big money to, to a backup for John, but twofold, why has this been a revolving door for, for John Wall's backup over the years, I think Ben Standig, once again, I'm referencing Ben Standig's podcast, people listen to his podcast, uh, he has not had me on to Ben, so if you're listening, which I know you're not, uh, I guess he feels that I'm a rival or something, but not really, I like Ben, he's a cool dude. Uh, b- but he tweeted out, like, all the backups that they'd had. And even Kyle, I believe, even said, hey, you're missing Will Bynum and Mike Bibby. <laughs> or, like, or, or, you know, some other jokes we had. But, you know, Pargo. One, twofold question. Why has the backup position of point guard been so, so befuddling with this organization with John Wall? And two, to me, once again... It shows a lack of confidence in Tomas Sadoransky. Because Tomas Sadoransky is a point guard. He is not a shooting guard. He should be running the point. I feel his development last year was subpar. Uh, He did make a big bucket in Game 6. And he showed some flashes here and there. And I can get why you're hesitant or why Scott Brooks maybe didn't trust him in certain situations. But hey, yo, you drafted him over Draymond Green. Let's go back. You kept him over in Europe for how many years? You brought him over here. He's athletic. His strength is athleticism and in, in, in the open court and his ability to create and run an offense. And you have brought in Trey Burke, Brandon Jennings, and now Tim Frazier to basically take minutes for him and stunt his development. So that's what I am like, well, then Tomas Andoransky is just some dude at the end of the bench then. You don't believe in him at all. And I'm not saying that, like, Hey, yo, like Tomas Sanoransky has played well enough to be that backup point guard. But the way we saw it played out last year and the way that you're kind of signaling already for next season means that you just don't believe in Tomas Sanoransky. And that's fine if you don't believe in him. But then what the hell was this whole thing of drafting him and st- to stare him over Europe and bringing him over was about then? That's where I get confused about the signals and what they're trying to do with this position a very important position when it comes to uh, the second unit for the Wizards.
1: Yeah, and and you think about going even back to last year, the Wizards traded a second-round pick to get Trey Burke to hedge their bets with Tomas Sadoransky, and they just did the same thing again. So you've effectively spent three second-round picks for a backup point guard, and you still might not have a backup point guard. And that's on top of the 2011 second-round pick you spent on Shelvin Mack to be a backup point guard yes, in New York. Uh, <laughs> and the 2013 second-round pick that you traded to get Andre Miller, yes. who was fine for a little bit, but then you had to ship him out for mm-hmm. Ramon Sessions.
0: So- or, or the second-round pick you, you gave to Denver to get rid of Vion Vesely, or the second-round pick that you – two second-round picks you traded up to get Ubre. Uh, you know, there's a conditional right. one for it- Dudley – uh, it keeps going. I'm about to get into that, too, but I see what you're saying. Like, like what is going on here? Like, you're trading second-round picks, and we still haven't found an answer.
1: Right, and, and I think part of that is one, one other thing to clarify, though, with the Andre Miller part. Um, Who was that?
0: What did that end up being?
1: That was the three-way trade that helped the Wizards not only unload Jan Vesely, but unload another point guard problem, Eric Maynard.
0: Oh God. That didn't they so, <laughs> Mainer Time. Oh Jesus. How bad was yeah. he?
1: <laughs> and speaking of a uh, Mainer Time, I don't know if you saw Tim Fraser's tweet today, but there were plain emojis in it. So uh, <laughs> good
0: omen. Well no no there, let's go. let's talk about Tim Fraser. Was not not a tweet that the wizards are terrible? Someone found that one. And granted uh, Timmy's. I, I didn't see that. No, no, there, there's a nope. tweet, it was during when the when John Wall was hurt. And they went like, you know, what was it, 4 and 24 or 4 and 28 or whatever that fucking madness was uh, in 2012, I believe, right? Sounds right. Beale's rookie year. That's 2012? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and where Wall had his microfactor surgery and was out half the season. And he said, he, there's a tweet from, I don't know where he was, maybe he was in Penn State at the time, and he's like, God, the Wizards are garbage, or something. And someone, right. said, someone said that to me, I was like, oh man, oh jeez." But, uh, you know, anyway, going back to the whole, so, so why can't he just figure this out, or what does this even mean, or or is this, is Tomas not in the plans, and that's fine if you don't believe he's in the plans, but, like, it's either, like, should I get off the pot? Like, either give him a chance to fail or succeed and stop giving away assets to just do a, temp- a temporary fixes that aren't even guaranteed to be temporary fixes, right? I mean, we knew, we knew Trey Burke was not really a point guard. Utah had decided that. I was okay somewhat to take a flyer on him, per se, but it was clear that he was a tweener. He could get some buckets in isolation, but he was never going to be a point guard to run the offense and and he wasn't even really a Jamal Crawford type super sub and so then you finally give Tomas over here, oh hey, you know, Tomas needs some seasoning, I get it and then you just bury Tomas don't really give him a chance and you pretty much play, then you sign Brandon Jennings okay move for the minimum, buy it out or whatever, you know, he's a guy that scored 50 in the league and you know he was number one player in high school basketball he's you know, he's a proven commodity. I understand why you're going to play him over Tomas. I get it. But then the fact that they had no backup uh, to shooting guard, so you're almost playing Brandon Jennings as a backup shooting guard and then bringing Tomas in together, or even Brandon Jennings and Wall were on the court at the same time. The analytics were disastrous at that. But how about this, Jake? Maybe they should have paid Garrett Temple. How about that? Is that, is that, is that what it is? Literally, I feel like they should just pay Garrett Temple. He can play the backup and the backup point guard. And maybe we, just, we underappreciated Garrett Temple's n- effectiveness on this team. Now, granted, I'm happy with Garrett Temple. If you would have told me last year the Wizards would have paid Garrett Temple's money, I would have been upset. But look what they gave Jan Mahimi and Nicholson and Jason Smith. So what the fuck? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I and mean, I, I think it, it would have of... sta- stabilized the position, right? You would have, sta- like, you would right. you would have known what was going to happen when Garrett Temple was in the court. He's not going to give you a high ceiling. Maybe when you know Brandon James would get hot, or Trey Burke potentially could get hot, but he would, sta- but but the lows of those two players will never be the lows of Garrett Temple. And his flaws, right. I think, were so much. Uh, we saw his development of his game, and aside from his leadership, aside from the fact that he's Beal's best friend and that Wall would listen to him, and he was almost like a a coach. I mean, he was just elected a uh, player associate. I don't know if you saw that. He was elected vice president to the Players Association uh, this week. And so they, there is this legitimate, like, I can see Garrett Temple being a coach someday. I can see him being a general manager, assistant general manager. I mean, that guy, when he's done playing, is going to be involved in this league because he just has a great personality. He has a set of values. Uh, people like him from, from people that, the guys on the bench to superstars, respect what he has to say. So I feel that that was missing uh, on this team a little bit. And the fact that he could be a competent backup and solve these issues. So you have to give assets away.
1: Yeah. Well, I I do think one aspect of the whole temple thing though, is that, um, you know, Brooks really wanted to put an emphasis on wall and Beale becoming the leaders. And to be fair, I don't know if that happens. The temple's still here.
0: Yeah, that's true, too. And, and, and you know. And to and to I, a lesser extent, know, extent, I think, the A, too, to tell you the truth, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, and, and Dudley and all
0: that. You know, I, I, I do. Their personalities yeah. were so strong, and those guys have always looked up to them that they wouldn't have taken that next leadership step with them around. I believe that's true.
1: Yeah, and it's just hard. Like, even, you know, I, I think Temple would have understood that and tried to take a backseat, but, it, you know, it's just hard in any kind of workplace setting when you still have the leader there to not kind of be the leader and kind of work that transition out. And so, you know, I, I get that, but yeah, I, I think the real issue throughout the whole um, wall era is that the wizards haven't put the right value on backup point guard because you know you kind of think about it in a traditional sense and you know looking at like a 10 man rotation backup point guard should be the position you invest the least in because it's you know you've got Wall starting there and he's playing the most minutes but at the same time if you put all these kind of interchangeable parts around Wall, you know kind of sub in and out on the wings with the bigs and everything else then, you know, maybe you, you go a little cheaper on some of those interchangeable parts because Wall can make them better. He has throughout his career. Look at Temple. Look at Razul Butler. Look at Dudley. Look at all the other guys that have benefited from Wall. And, you know, you invest a little bit more in that backup point guard so that he can actually um, maintain what Wall did on the floor. And um, kind of plug in with what those you know interchangeable parts around him are doing.
0: Yeah, so Jake, this is my rant that I was going to do. So you you know flatter me by listening. So the four last four drafts, the Wizards have one player, two players, two the rights to two players to show for the last four drafts, and that is in the 2015 draft when they traded two picks to move up to get Ubre instead of just drafting. Bobby Portis, which I still feel that that is to be determined about that decision, even though I do like Ubre and people are still high on Oubre, and especially around the league. He's shown flashes, so I don't think that that is a negative one yet, and they have the rights to Aaron White, who has not really shown that he has the ability, and it saddens me to say as an Iowa Hawkeye, to play in the league yet, but they still have his rights in Europe. But in 2014, they traded for Gortat, second-round pick, they sold Jordan Clarkson, 2016 uh, was the Marquise Morris Marquis Morris trade and the second round pick was they they didn't even have one who what was that that was for the Oubre pick yes so and then this yeah. year they trade for Bogdanovich and then they traded for the pick again so Jake this team this franchise hasn't won 50 games and they're out there punting in drafts And so so in a vacuum I can defend the Marquis Morris trade I can defend the Gortat trade I can even defend Selling Clarkson. I can even defend this this Frazier trade. But, as a philosophy, overall, teams that are doing this, are teams that, you know, the Cavs, you know, trade their picks for Kyle Korver or whoever because, you know, they're going for a title. Or, you know, you would seen teams in the past, say the Bulls or the Spurs or whoever, at the end of the draft, it doesn't really matter, and they might trade people. But this team never buys into the draft. They sell picks instead of buying. I've I've just bitched about the three times they've sold picks, and then they give smokescreen that they're going to buy into the draft. Last year, Ted Leonsis was saying, "Hey, uh, you know, I was at a when John Wall uh, was got awarded for the NBA Community Player of the Year. I went to his press conference. It was an awesome event. Afterwards, you know, we talked about it with Ted Leonsis. It was before the draft." I asked him straight up, hey, are you going to buy in the draft? He's like, yeah, we're you know we're looking at our options. We're thinking about it, blah, blah. He tweets out about how Brogdon was only seven months uh, younger than Beal. And so I tweet on May something, Memorial Day weekend, maybe you should draft, maybe you should pay in, buy into the draft and draft Brogdon. Then. I still save that tweet. I've now shared it a million times. Now Brogdon is now the rookie of the year. And, and so, of course, that doesn't make me feel better, per se, but it's also just, and then I looked in this draft last year, you saw the Warriors buy into the draft $3.5 million. And here's the deal. I'm not even saying, like, buying into the draft. There is some player out there I can say, like, hey, buy into, the, buy into this draft because that player is going to change the Wizards. I don't even know if that is true, but it's just the whole philosophy of, like, what other team that hasn't won 50 games that is just putting out of drafts is a philosophy and to go from when Ted Leonsis bought the team in Monumental how we're gonna build this draft through young players and we saw none of it worked out. Sarah didn't work out, Singleton didn't work out, he's mentioned Mac, Jordan Crawford, we had to trade picks to get rid of them. Uh, Trevor Booker, they didn't you know they traded two pick they traded picks to get Trevor Booker. They should have kept him, they didn't I can't think of anything in the wall era of these players in the first or second round that they have developed. So they went from like, oh, hey, we suck at drafting to now we're just not going to draft at all. And I I just don't find that holistically that this is a positive approach that leads to success, Jake. And it just drives me up an effing wall. It's so frustrating. And I'm glad you're listening to me. And this is therapy. So tell me where I'm right or wrong, or do you feel what I'm talking about? Because I... Because I feel like Wizards fans listening to this right now feel my frustration of with the fact that, like, hey, dude, if we're a fucking a player away, and we got to trade for Bogdanovich at the deadline t- to to make a run to the finals, then, yeah, do it. I don't give a shit. But I feel like if it's just, like, okay, then you can make this one move, I'm like, okay, yeah, hey, you know, we need a power forward, or we're trying to make the playoffs for Randy Whitman, so we're going to trade for Markeith Morris, which didn't work out. Or the Gortat trade, which ended up working out because the team made the playoffs, but it could have not worked out. And I just don't see any other teams in the NBA doing this. And I don't know where it's sustainable. And I don't know where the philosophy changed from we're going to draft young players or we're always going to take a flyer on young players to now we're not going to even we're going to punt out of drafts and give up assets to, to get out of these drafts. And now we have Scott Brooks who. Does have a, a good history of developing young players, and now two drafts of Scott Brooks being our coach that we've invested twenty five million dollars as a coach. That the only players we're going to give him are, are Chefu and, and, and Daniel House and, and Mac, and we've already cut House.
1: Right. Yeah, and and I think that's yeah. It, do, you, like do you understand my I,
0: frustration I, I, on that? Like, yeah, am I a crazy person? Yeah. Like, like, I, I don't no, know. I mean, because I feel like I can defend it. It was. I feel like I can defend every one of these moves by the front office, you know, Grumfeld and Tommy Shepard individually. And I can see their thinking, but then this whole holistic approach to like, Hey man, it's a benefit to get a young player. And I know the second round is, is a crap shoot. And we just said the 52nd pick hasn't done shit ever. So I get it. But then it's just like, if you're doing this every year, like what the fuck is happening here? Like in like, and, it, it, yeah, you think it's a crapshoot in the second round? Free agents or free agent rookies are way more of a crapshoot, right? Right.
1: Yeah, it's just I, I think, you know, pretty much throughout, um, you know, the arenas era and the wall era, the whole issue has been um, that Washington pushed all their chips in on the table uh, bef- a little too early. And because of that, they've had to, you know, chase good money after bad with some of these bad draft picks uh, that didn't work out, you know, trying to fill gaps. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think even you go back to the Gortat trade that really kind of set off this chain reaction. um, The reason they had a void at center is because, one – uh, Serafin wasn't yes, um, ready all, to be right? a starter. Yes. Right. And, yes. and you know, to some extent, they just needed front court pro- uh, production because Jan Vesely hadn't worked out.
0: Vesely and Seraphim don't so, work out, and Oakford gets hurt. And so now you're forced, your move's forced.
1: Exactly. And so, uh, you know, something I wrote last year, you know. And also,
0: even yeah. Javelle McGee to a lesser extent, if you want to know the truth. But yeah. And, and Blatch. Yes, yeah.
1: And, um, so there's investing four, in four, him.
0: four bigs right there that don't work out, right? Right. And then you trade for Nene, who has injury issues, and he doesn't want to play center, so you have his ego to deal with, right? So you have a lot of things going on with him. Yeah. You said you wrote something. I'm sorry, I interrupted. You said you wrote
1: Yeah, something. Yeah, no, it's just I, I think it all goes back, um, as much as we harp on it, to the 2011 draft. You had oh, three... Top 34 picks, and you whiffed on all three. It, you know, so that's, you know, the, the first two years of this wall era rebuild was about accumulating picks, and to Grunfeld's credit, did a great job. He leveraged um, teams that were chasing LeBron and trying to clear cap space, and he ended up, I want to say, with seven first round picks yes. in 2010 and 2011.
0: Yes. And Crawford was one of them too.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. If you count Crawford, which technically he didn't draft, but got through the Heinrich deal, and out of that they got one player who lasted beyond their rookie deal, and that's John Wall.
0: And they gave and they the gave other, away they gave away picks to get rid of them too.
1: You know, even Mac, who has been the second most productive 2011. You know, 2012 they had Beal, and, and they took Saderansky. Just their two standard picks. That was it, and then. 2013 they had that one let you know the two second round picks and they decided to consolidate it into one for Glenn Rice who didn't work out either so you know it yeah it's beating the same old drum the wizards can't draft but you know every every team has swings and misses even the spurs it's like everyone you know has draft picks that don't pan out you know, we can, you know, whine about, you know, how stuff in 2011 didn't work. But the, the the issue was that ultimately Washington never gave themselves more opportunities after all the assets they, you know, put together those first two years. And instead of looking at, like, when they made the trade for Gortat, they could have said, you know what, we're going to ride it with Serafin, even if he's not good. um, if we don't make the playoffs, we we end up with a better lottery pick than the one that the Suns ended up getting because the Wizards were a better team. You know, like, they, they could have stalled their development a little bit to, you know, give themselves more opportunities to get, you know, players that could work out. And, like, you know, when Webster had a great year, Washington could have tried to leverage that to get a pick or something, and they didn't. Instead, they locked him up to a deal that didn't help them. And so, you know, I, I, I think there's just been...
0: A lot of self-inflicted blunders, which I don't really understand. And, and sometimes I don't even blame Grumfeld. And I know fans don't want to hear this because Grumfeld's, you know, death Grumfeld in taxes, and he's been there forever, and he is a pinata, and he should be held accountable for a lot of his decisions. Some have worked, some have not. But he's made some good decisions in the other ones. But I also feel that there has been a mandate from ownership that is improving all these deals. And so when the Gortat thing worked out, then now it became like, oh, hey, now, oh, well, let's just trade our first round picks now, right? Let's try to make the playoffs. Ray Whitman's like, yeah, I want to make the playoffs because that's what my owner wants to do, so let's trade a pick for Marquise. And, you know, and then that's all Let's trade up for Oubre because we want to see – found was bizarre, said it was taking Portis right there, and then you can keep the Marquise pick. And then how they trade for, you know, second round picks around. Because then I feel like also, if you hit on one of these second round picks, as we've seen in the NBA, especially with the Warriors and Draymond Green, I know that's like an example which not isn't conducive to every team per se. But then you have younger assets to then flip later on. And I feel like the Wizards have really squandered their ability to be more flexible in trades with some young players when you, maybe it's because many women sucked to develop young players and that's why some of the stuff didn't work out but they just didn't have that flexibility when it comes to acquiring some young players that show flashes like, you know hey, a Rogier or Jalen Brown even though I know Jalen Brown was a lottery pick but you know, other players are like oh hey, now I can flip that guy in a pick for someone really good Right, instead of like now, it's like oh, we just got to trade picks first or to get rid of salary, some mistakes that we made. So, Jake, the, the other reason I want to have you on here, and I know we've God, we went way too long on all this stuff, so let's just go through. These are the the, the other main reason I have you on is is that you are the salary cap guru. So I want you to explain to the people the Washington Wizards' current situation with the salary cap. And as it plays out here, as free agency is about to kick off on July 1st, and just how everything, you know, what what kind of committed money they have. And I know that they offered uh, contracts more formality to Bogdanovich and Porter uh, and just how this whole structure is because it matters of what kind of moves they can make here moving forward. Yeah, so
1: basically um, um, over the weekend, the Wizards – Uh, made Porter and Bogdanovich restricted free agents which gives the uh, the Wizards the chance to match any offer sheet that uh, either player gets as long as that qualifying offer is still on the table Um, Washington could um, pull back that qualifying offer between now and July 23rd and if they do that then you know um, they become unrestricted free agents, which, um, means that basically the Wizards can't re-sign them only because the Wizards are already over the cap. By keeping them as restricted free agents, they can not only go over the cap, but they can match any offer, um, this summer. Which is especially big for Otto because, you know, you figure teams like the Sixers and the Nets and, uh, some of those other teams that are, um, have a lot of cap room and don't have a lot of young assets will be coming at him. So that's good. Um, it's going to be hard to keep both. Um, mainly just because you get into luxury tax issues. Um, not The Wizards can retain them. Hold on, know, hold on, Jake.
0: Let me wrap me yeah. that, that, that media availability of yeah. Ernie Griffold. He said they might pay the tax for the right player. <laughs> and they might. <laughs> I know, I know. And you're... I- I- I don't think they will, and I don't know who the right player would be, but I'm skeptical, so keep going. Right.
1: But, yeah, I mean, in the luxury tax, um, there's a bunch of complicated stuff with that that I, even I don't understand, but a lot of it, it's, um, you know, for however far you go over the tax, you pay a certain amount based on how much you go over. Um, there is a chance if Auto gets a max this summer, that, that alone could put the wizards into the tax so that's you know something to keep an eye on and you know, we can talk a little bit later about how they might try to dodge that with auto but um you know i think
0: <coughs> so do, so they they have the, oh. the, the mid level exception and then the ba is there, is there how many exceptions are there yeah. know the, the ba okay. 1 the, 2 the right other-
1: yeah, the biannual, since they didn't use that last year, they have that on the they table. Have, they have, both, they have uh, both, correct, right? Right. And then there's just the minimum exception, anybody you sign to a minimum deal. So, uh, so what's, uh, the, what's, the, what's the mid-level right now? Like four or
0: five? Uh, the mid-level
1: is, well, it's tricky because there's two answers. Um, there is the uh, mid-level they have if they use it before they get into the tax, and then if they don't use it before they get into the tax. Then it's a smaller mid level, but um, the traditional mid level, which I would expect they use, um, will probably be eight point four million for the first year, and then you know you can do um, you know raises off of that for however many years you want to put on after that. But um,
0: and the other yeah, one, the other ones look like, what three or four million,
1: yeah, something like that. Okay. So and, then, you know, and that doesn't
0: not, that doesn't count against the cap. That's why it's called the exception, correct?
1: Well, well, it you're you're it it counts against your your payroll and it, but you you can still use it even if you're
0: over. It, does, the it, it doesn't it doesn't count against the tax.
1: No, it does count against the tax. That's it does the, count. That's it's the truth.
0: So so yeah. why is it why is it called the exception then?
1: Well, just because you can still use it even though. You're over Um, under. You're
0: You're over under, right? You're over. It doesn't matter.
1: Right. Yeah. It's it's just it's a mechanism to let you sign somebody for other than the minimum, even though you're you know beyond the point where you have spending money under the cap.
0: So, do you see the Wizards paying the luxury tax at all? I think they will. I, I think I think they're at a point
1: where they can justify it which, you know, relative to the rest of team history, um, if, if there's been a season where you can justify doing it, this is the year. So, um, and I think relative to the backlash you're going to get, if you don't keep this team together, um, I, I don't think you can risk that uh, if you're Leonsis. Um, You know, the cumulative effects of losing people who um, see it as you not being invested in the team, um, I don't think you want to risk that. So
0: or pissing yeah, off, John, I, or I, pissing I, off John Wall, right? <laughs> we're going to talk about John Wall, who, but, I mean that's the last thing we're going to talk about is John Wall after we talk about right. this and and Otto Porter. But I feel like that has got it way heavily on ownership in the front office.
1: Exactly, and that's where you know, you know, we we can talk about that a little bit more. But um, yeah, that I, I don't think. Um, it's so much going to be an issue of will they pay the tax? It's just a matter of how much they'll pay,
0: and then a lot of that just depends on Bogdanovich's market. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So, what, what do you think Bogdanovich's market is? I mean, because like I would think the mainstream narrative right now was that they're going to pay Otto and Bogdanovich walks. Do you agree? Yeah. Do you agree or disagree with that?
1: I, I would say that's probably the case, but I do think there is a window of opportunity depending on um, how things shake out with Otto, first and foremost. And then, you know, because Bogdanovich is a restricted free agent and because the Wizards can match, we've seen, uh, you know, with restricted free agents in the past, sometimes that kind of cools the market a bit. Uh, teams just don't want to bother signing an offer, locking up their cap room with an offer sheet for, you know, however many days while the Wizards decide whether or not to match. You know, that could play into Washington's hands and maybe they get Bogdanovich for a little cheaper than, you know, what they'd get otherwise. And I think part of the issue is, too, you know, a lot of your teams with cap space aren't going to be quite as interested in a guy like Bogdanovich, who's kind of mid-career right now. He doesn't really help a rebuilding team with that... Like uh, Philadelphia, by the time you know the 76ers are in a place they can use him, his contract will probably be over. And, and Brooklyn can't even make an offer because they traded him. That Andrew Bogut rule, where you you can't reacquire a player you traded within a year.
0: So maybe, um, so maybe the Wizards have a little bit favorable terms on keeping Bogdanovich on, on that, depending on the money. Right.
1: If they can somehow get him for that mid-level or lower, and I, I do think there is a chance for that because I think he's going to be more...
0: Like a two-year deal, uh, front-loaded or something?
1: Well, no, I mean, I think you'd probably need to give him three or four, but I don't know if anyone's going to give him more than $8.4 million to start next yeah, year. That, that makes sense. So I think if you can keep him under that, then mm-hmm. I think you've got a chance at keeping him because I've been playing with the numbers a little bit and few can get Bogdanovich for like, let's say you start him at seven and give him like four years, which is probably more than anyone else would give him this summer between that. And maybe if you get auto to kind of hedge between like a five year max and a four year max, give him like more than he would get on a four year deal on the open market but less than just giving him everything you can kind of keep your luxury tax about 10
0: million. All right. That wraps up part one of my conversation with Jake Whitaker of Bulls Forever. We went for almost two and a half hours. So I broke it up into two sections. Part two should be up shortly. Thank you everyone for your support. And as always go wizards. Peace. F Kelly Linick.